Sometimes the devil will be in the details, but I anticipate that 2024 will probably be as provocative and as stimulating as 2023 was. Thanks for tuning in to Keep It Legal, the show where we break down concepts, litigation, and current events with our legal experts. I'm your host, Mark Anik. Okay, we're halfway down our list to number five, and we're talking about bans adopted by the Texas legislature in 2023, which this year included uh, and targeted library books in schools, drag shows, a piece of legislation later overturned by a federal court, and gender-affirming care for transgender children and teens. Let's listen to Dallas appellate attorney Chad Ruback and hear what he has to say on these issues. The Texas legislature has enacted a number of statutes that are certain to face court scrutiny, might withstand the scrutiny, might not. The Texas legislature is not shy on pushing the envelope as to what they think they can get away with in terms of subsequent court scrutiny. It seems to me that at least one of these bills enacted by the Texas legislature, if not multiple bills enacted by the Texas legislature this last session, will end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, The U.S. Supreme Court is very much divided, much more so than the Texas Supreme Court. It will be interesting to see how the U.S. Supreme Court addresses some of these bills if, in fact, the Supreme Court takes them up at all. I imagine there are a lot of far-right Texas voters who are going to be thrilled by what the Texas legislature has done in the past session. On the other hand, I imagine there are going to be a lot of moderate voters in Texas, folks who might consider themselves Republicans, but moderate Republicans, who are not going to be thrilled that the Texas legislature is focusing on some more far right wing policies rather than meat and potatoes. You know, we want to improve the quality of our schools. We want to improve the quality of our roads. We want to improve, you know, know, the penal system, for example. Uh, There are absolutely positively going to be some middle-of-the-road voters, even middle-of-the-road Republican voters, who would prefer the Texas legislature focus on meat and potato issues rather than cater to the far-right politically. With some of these new bills that have been passed, the trial courts, the appellate courts, the state courts, the federal courts, lawyers will have plenty of work thanks to the Texas legislature in this past session. The notion of lawyers having a fair amount of work makes me chuckle just a little bit, I guess. But Chad does make the point, you know, we talked about the drag show ban and a federal court already setting that aside. But the the other two that we mentioned, books, gender-affirming care, and there are plenty of other laws that the legislature passed. Chad is of a mindset that one or more of these is headed to the Supreme Court. Agree? Disagree? Without a doubt, I think they're headed to the Supreme Court. Just to look at the book ban for a second, um, you know, it does, uh, it, it would be easy perhaps to dismiss that as a uh, uh, far right concern and as part of an overall political strategy. But the truth is that uh, parents for uh, many years have felt like uh, they have lost control of, uh, you know, their children's environment, including their schools. And as you know, Mark, uh, as parents, we were far more involved than perhaps our parents were in our schooling. And so therefore, we feel a little bit more empowered. I can't help feel, though, that it's a little bit beside the point. While we might be uh, 
uh, quick to uh, ban uh, a cartoon of a, a rear end in a, that appears in a school book. Uh, you know, our, our, our children are being in some ways eaten alive by social media and the pressures of algorithms and, uh, you know, peer pressure uh, in social media. And so uh, I think the Supreme Court uh, and voters at some point will have to start making some decisions about, you know, what's truly relevant in our lives. But we'll see. It's interesting, the cycle of these things politically, right, that that uh, we live in a time where we see the Texas legislature enacting these bans on books. Uh it, it, it harkens back to a much earlier age and a different time in America altogether. And yet here we are in the 21st century and we're dealing with, with some of these things. Um, continuing now, number four on our list is the fight over school vouchers or school choice, depending on where you stand, perhaps politically. House Bill number one, which would have created an education savings account program for Texas families, was a top priority for the governor. Opponents say the program would steal public school funds and exacerbate existing funding shortfalls. Mike, as you know, we live in a state where the legislature meets only once every other year, and yet the governor called them back into session no fewer than four times to try to get this legislation through the legislature, and it did not work. So what do, what do we make of that? I think in some uh, ways, uh, Governor Abbott is cursed to be number two behind the governor of Florida. You know, Governor Abbott was a little bit behind the curve on immigration, and uh, DeSantis took the initiative. And now on this issue, uh, you know, Florida enacted uh, similar measures uh, in March of this year. And uh, in Florida, folks are trying to figure out what it all means. You know, Mark, it goes a little bit back to what I said earlier. Some uh, parents feel like the public educational system is failing them. Um, the uh, Republican Party as a political tactic is opposed to the teacher unions, which have been uh, uh, supportive of Democratic candidates largely. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, we'll have to decide what kind of uh, society uh, we want to have. I do take it seriously that if uh, money is being siphoned off for uh, private and religious, independent religious schools, that uh, that's money that's not going to the public school system. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, voters will get to decide, like, what kind of school system they want. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll have to sort out, you know, what the voucher system, if it gets passed in Texas, because the governor seems determined to make that happen, uh, what that looks like and whether that amount of money, I know in Florida, it's about $8,000 a year is enough for most families to afford uh, a non-public school. As a reporter, you covered the Texas legislature. This goes back to the 1990s. Does this legislature resemble that deliberative body in, in any way, shape or form or is this a different animal altogether now? Well, you know, the legislators individually and then as a body have always had pet causes that uh, sometimes seem larger than what their constituents need or require. 
I think what's different now is that uh, many of these issues are being raised to serve a fairly small, statistically small percentage of Texans. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the legislators who have been proposing these measures have largely been successful. It gets them reelected, maybe as equally important, it gets them funded and financed. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, at some point, uh, there might be an equal and opposite counterweight uh, with more progressive policies. But at least for now, those politicians feel empowered that uh, there's not any significant resistance. And so, you know, these are issues that'll come up in every election. Let's move on to our top three. It's uh, sometimes difficult to put these all in some sort of order, but we had three stories we think that really stood out this year. And one of them involves Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the relationship that he has with Dallas billionaire Harlan Crow. Reports revealed that Crow paid for elaborate, expensive vacations for Justice Thomas uh, without any disclosure on the justice's part. Uh, that Mr. Crow provided a private jet and even paid for boarding school for a young man Justice Thomas looks upon as a son. We asked legal ethics guru Randy Johnston of Johnston Toby Baruch to give us his thoughts. I could not believe that a Supreme Court justice had accepted financial benefit at that level. And it turns out we learned even more later. It was even worse than we thought. Uh, and even more importantly, had not disclosed it. I, w- I was totally shocked that that had occurred. When the public loses respect for the integrity of the judicial process, courts mean nothing. There's a phrase that is often used by lawyers, the appearance of impropriety. Uh, and it, that just gets washed aside, I think, too easily. Because even if Clarence Thomas would rule against Harlan Crow in a heartbeat, even if that were the case, and he would have uh, absolutely no thought of favoring him the least for these hundreds of thousands of dollars of gift, a premise I reject, by the way, but even if that were the case, it looks so bad that if Harlan Crow were in the right and the court properly ruled for him, no one would believe it. Uh, the appearance of impropriety is so strong that it undermines the entire judicial process. They're the only nine lawyers in the entire country that uh, do not have a set of standards they're supposed to comply with. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about another of the stories on our list, uh, the need for lawyers to follow an ethical code. Let me just get your initial reaction. We all saw the Harlan Crow Justice Thomas story break. What did you think when when you first heard about this? It made me sad. You know, when uh, uh, when I was a law student and we studied constitutional law, you know, implicit in all of our discussions was you could disagree with the court's opinion. You could disagree with an individual judge's point of view, but you uh, would look around at the three branches of government and you had, uh, uh, even back when I was in law school, Congress was in ill repute. Uh, at least one president uh, in my lifetime 
uh, had been impeached. And uh, here was the judiciary that you could look at and say, by golly, when all else fails, we can trust that our judges are going to be um, uh, controlled only by uh, their experience and their expertise and their view of the law. And now we don't have that anymore. And I think of all the erosions to our public institutions, the erosion of our faith in the judiciary uh, has the, the, the biggest threat to uh, you know, our future as a democratic society. It really made me sad. Does it help at all? I, I agree with you with regard to the sadness. I want there to be an ethical code. And by the way, the Supreme Court authored one subsequent to this, but of course it's not binding. Um, and there were the further disclosures that Justice Alito had uh, similar issues with a billionaire friend of, of his. Uh, right, does and it, one of the Democrats, uh, maybe uh, Kagan, had her staff helping to sell a book. So it's not, it, it crosses party lines. Correct, correct. And thank you for that. I appreciate it. Does it give us any hope when we hear a Randy Johnston, though, and you and I know plenty of lawyers and a certain number of judges, right? Does it give us any hope when we hear a Randy Johnston talk about being out to lunch with one of his judge friends and the judge friend is keeping track of who pays this time because he or she does not want to create the appearance of impropriety, as he mentions? Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in my sadness, uh, not for a second do I not believe that most judges and most officers of the court, which is every lawyer who practices in a courtroom, uh, uh, is ethical and really cares about it. Uh, and then, you know, uh, for all the uh, uh, criticism of the media, you know, knowing in the work that we do, we know that often powerful people are guided by a strong desire, you know, not to get caught or to, uh, if their actions will be illuminated someday, that they be viewed as ethical and proper. And so that is my hope that, uh, you know, there are more uh, jurists who are concerned. You know, this appearance of impropriety sounds like a, a little thing, right? Because it's like, well, what is that really? But that's basically saying that even if you're in the right, but it somehow looks wrong, you shouldn't do it. And, you know, most of us have a pretty good radar of what's appropriate and what's not. And when we do something that we think isn't appropriate, we know. And I felt in this case that Clarence Thomas and the people around him at some point surely should know, even if it's technically okay, it doesn't look right. And it does have ramifications. And I thought Randy Johnston was dead on when he said, you know, even if the judge, you know, rules against uh, Crow, Harlan Crow, in a case that should happen to come up, uh, it's it's still somehow tainted. Uh, and and the judiciary does not want that because at the end of the day, it could find it could be the final arbiter of usually important issues that affect all of us. In in two thousand, it was the arbiter of who would be president of the United States. So right, and that could happen again. It could happen again. <laughs> All right, number two, we're going to get into something that is uh, 
what we would consider a third rail issue, and that is we're discussing abortion. Since the United States Supreme Court overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade case, laws across the country and in Texas have been making headlines and causing controversy between doctors and lawmakers and ultimately creating issues for women and their families. Recently, Travis County Judge Maya Guerra-Gamble handed down a temporary restraining order on behalf of Kate Cox, a North Texas woman who wanted to terminate her non-viable pregnancy under medical exemption. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton then went to court and put a stop to that. Ultimately, Ms. Cox left Texas to get an abortion as there were concerns for her health and for her ability to continue to have more children in the future. Attorney David Cole, an appellate lawyer at Lynn Pinker, Hurst, and Schwegman, had this to say. There are two takeaways. One is if you have a really complex pregnancy where abortion is something that your healthcare providers are considering, you're better off leaving Texas sooner rather than later. Uh, and the second uh, takeaway was that this tactic of going to court before a procedure to try to get sort of a preclearance from the courts is just not going to work. I think uh, the proponents of these statutes learned that they aren't as popular at the ballot box as they might have thought. And there's been this steady drumbeat over the last year of cases like Ms. Cox that are very difficult. We're talking about a statute that's designed to be used in prosecuting somebody where you come back with a defense against it. So you could imagine prosecutions somewhere down the line where a prosecutor says an abortion took place, the doctor claims there was medical necessity, and they are wrong. I have a doctor who knows better than that doctor, and I can prove that defense isn't so. And I think that possibility is something that has a lot of healthcare providers concerned in Texas. There's a chilling effect to that. Now, is any prosecutor going to actually bring that case against a well-meaning provider who acted in good faith? That's unlikely, particularly in a big city in Texas. But the threat is still out there. And if you're general counsel to a hospital, you're going to take it seriously when you advise your client about good policies. The Texas problem with it is one that's shared nationally with these laws. Everybody was in a hurry to pass a new abortion criminal law after Roe was overturned. And they're all drafted by lawyers and not doctors. And the fit between what lawyers think looks reasonable as a matter of criminal law and what doctors and hospitals think is reasonable as a matter of good practice is not all that great. Mike, earlier you made this point in one of our top 10 stories about 50 different states and 50 different rules or laws, right? We might have been talking about the migration issues and all of that. It strikes me that we're dealing with very much the same thing with regard to abortion. Right. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie has embraced that. He said, hey, the Supreme Court has spoken. Now each state can do what it wants. And, and I do think that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court does not and will not revisit this issue, not for a very, very long time. Uh, and so it'll, it will be left to the states to sort it out. And I do think in Texas, you know, the courts have sort of pleaded with the state medical authorities to come up with some sort of protocols for or hypotheticals for situations that arise. And I think that uh, over time, you know, that'll happen. And we will be a patchwork quilt across the country. And some states will uh, have legalized abortion and some states such as Texas will not. 
that raises a provocative question in my mind is, I guess it's how united are we in a United States of America where there are potentially 50, 50 different laws depending on jurisdiction and geography? Sure. And, you know, uh, uh, those who uh, delve into federalist policy would argue that it's the it shows a very healthy democracy, that that was the original intent of our constitutional founders, that the federal government had limited authority, mostly around uh, uh, defense, uh, and it was left to the states to uh, sort out uh, how they lived, how they wanted to live, and how they wanted to interact with one another. The counter is that it's a much more complex society these days, and we're intertwined in a lot of uh, different ways, not only nationally and domestically, but internationally. And, um, you know, can a society and a country stand with uh, 50 states doing different things? We're an extremely resilient country, and uh, um, I'm somewhat hopeful we can sort through that. Let's move to our number one story. There was perhaps no story bigger in the state of Texas than the historic impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton, who later was acquitted on all 16 articles of impeachment. It was anything but ordinary, between the trial being neither civil nor criminal, or the jurors being openly lobbied at times during the proceedings. Amongst the history makers was the House Manager's Counsel, Rusty Hardin, who shares what it was like to participate in state history. Our firm had to come in and learn what this case was about in 90 days and be well uh, ready to put it on. And they get all the credit. I, I'll take none for whatever small role I had. Uh, but those people worked unbelievably hard, sometimes 19-hour days. What we had to do is master just, you know, I think we produced in the trial close to 4,000 uh, documents. Think about that. And we had to absorb them and learn them uh, within that short period of time. And then the team had to figure out which witnesses we're going to use and then what documents go with these witnesses. Just like a normal trial that you usually take a year to year and a half to two years to prepare. We had to issue new subpoenas by the Senate. The Senate uh, would then determine when they issued them after we applied for them. And so we didn't get the documents until shortly before trial in most situations. I will never be prouder of any effort of any people I've ever worked with uh, than I was with uh, these people that were on the impeachment team. They were phenomenal. I was tremendously impressed with the political courage the House had uh, to vote the impeachment in spite of all the pressure from members uh, of their own party and the Republican Party. Uh, and I thought that uh, the matter needed to be heard. And, and I, I I felt really obligated to those who had the courage to, to put it forward, to at least try to do the very best we could. You know, when you take that out of the political context for just a moment, not that you can, but you think about it from a legal perspective, as Rusty speaks, the notion of having to go to trial in that short a period of time, absorbing 4,000 documents and figuring out the witnesses and doing all of that in 90 days it's really extraordinary, notwithstanding the outcome. Yeah, if you uh, watch the trial, um, you know, I was really impressed with the lawyering on both sides. I thought, you know, there was a lot of potential that to be a slapdash or hyperbolic 
uh, trial and and there were moments, right? But overall, I thought the lawyering on both sides was excellent. And this case is far from over, even though it's over in the Senate. You have the whistleblowers and their civil case still out there. Just this week, the Dallas Morning News named those eight whistleblowers the Texans of the year. And, and that case is still winding its way through the system. It was the proposed settlement there that prompted the impeachment. Yeah, and you know, I, I have a, a theory that in the way that uh, Donald Trump might be a model for uh, our attorney general, I uh, wonder if Ken Paxton is not a model for other, uh, let's say mostly Republican, but but maybe not just Republican, uh, public figures around the country. You know, I think in hindsight, many people would feel like there were two trials going on. There was the legal case that I thought uh, Rusty Harden and his team had proved. But then uh, there was the political case that Tony Buzz, T- Tony Busby uh, propounded that I, um, you know, you could not really anticipate the impact of, uh, you know, these jurors who are state senators being lobbied in real time uh, via text and social media as the trial was going on. And I just can't believe that there won't be lessons learned there, maybe on both sides going forward. Not that there's going to be impeachments around the country everywhere, but uh, I think the lesson that that uh, the Ken Paxton prosecution impeachment shows is if it's a political trial, marshal your base get your funding, uh, uh, get your allies close, and then galvanize like it's a war. And that's what I thought that the Paxton forces did here. You know, as we put together this list this year, I was impressed with the items that were on it and the quality of uh, the comments from people we had the, the privilege to speak with. And as you and I have gone through them, one by one, it occurs to me, boy, there's an awful lot of meat here. There's an awful lot of very important issues that affect each of us as citizens living here in Texas. Yeah, these are exciting times. I mean, at, at a fundamental lef- level, we are definitely tinkering with our government and how our government um, interacts with uh, the people. And that's, uh, that's exciting. Like good ideas can come from all sides. And, uh, you know, sometimes the devil will be in the details. But I anticipate that 2024 will probably be as provocative and as stimulating as 2023 was. Mike Andrevet, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Forgive us for having taken a year to have you in as a guest. We're going to have to have you back uh, at some point again in the future. You're doing a great job, Mark, and thank you for allowing me to participate. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. If you, as a listener, would like to go through our top 10 list, you can do so by visiting our website, androvet.com. That's A-N-D-R-O-V-E-T-T.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and tune in next time to Keep It Legal. I'm your host, Mark Anik. We'll see you then.